the Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hey folks, this is Chris, and welcome to the conclusion of Season 2 of the Application Security Podcast. Season 2 has been primarily dedicated to the world of OWASP. And so in this Roundup episode, we're going to share some of our favorite clips from this season. And this season took us all across the United States to different conferences, interviewing people. And so we hope you enjoy, and please look forward to Season 3 in early 2018. We begin our review of Season 2 with a clip from Episode 2 where we talk about insufficient attack protection and how that was almost added into the OWASP Top 10. All right, so here's A7, the the first new one to the list here. This is insufficient attack protection. And like we said already in this conversation that... This is one that's really draw has has drawn a lot of controversy in the industry, and so this is the idea that the application should have something within it to help it detect, log, respond to, and even block security attacks that are happening. Because security, the way we've approached it for the last twenty years, as long as I've been doing this, is security from the information security side has been about putting devices, some level or some number of metal boxes with network interfaces that provide all of the protection that we need, whether that's DDoS protection, which then feeds to my firewall, which then feeds to my IPS, which then feeds to something else and something else. And so this is the idea that some of that protection capability has to be brought into the actual application itself, which I, I actually believe in this because when you think about trying to do things at scale, that's one of the things that I learned over as I've kind of had a chance to explore some very high-end uh, or high-performing websites that are passing gigabits of traffic per second. There's not enough firewalls in the world to keep up with a site that's, pra- that's pushing gigabits per second of data consistently through throughout all the time. Uh, so you got to have something else to do security there. And I think that's what insufficient attack protection is, is trying to do. Yeah. So like you said, some kind of um, inherent in the application itself, understanding uh, some attack patterns, understanding uh, what's happening and getting real time understanding of what's happening with your application so that, uh, you know, as it's running, it, you know, I could think of, for example, there, out, of, out of OWASP, there's the app sensor that, that does this kind of thing as well, where you build it in and it, it can detect certain things. So that's what we're talking about. It's just ways of building in detection of patterns uh, that, that may be seen in the code so that, uh, and then determine what you do next. Yeah, and, and I mean, some of the controversy, I guess, that surrounded this is, so Jeff Williams and Dave Wickers are the two project leads for the OWASP Top 10. And Jeff Williams actually is the CTO of a company called Contrast Security. And they're building, they have a product that provides that in-app instrumentation type of approach to detecting pro- uh, attacks and, and responding to attacks in real time. 
And so that's what some of the controversy I think is coming from is because people are saying, well, you know, this is something that's like a self-serving type of thing. And I, I really don't think it is though. And I, I have the benefit. I, I had a chance to work with Jeff and Dave, um, back in the nineties at a small security company for a few years. And so I really don't think, I don't think they're trying to game the system here at all. I think this is a necessary move forward for the OWASP top 10 because this is where security has to go closer into the applications. Uh, so I, I think that this is, this is something that, that really does have to happen, uh, for the industry to move forward. Robert and I had a chance to sit down with the new OWASP Top 10 Project Leadership Team at AppSec USA and talk about what's transpired with this project over the last number of months. In late May, I was approached by Dave Wickers. Um, There was a lot of criticism of the first um, release candidate of the OWASP Top 10, which seemed to pop out of nowhere. I had a couple of extra items in there that people were... For whatever reasons, um, I'm not going to get into the drama cycle of that particular thing, but the two major thrusts of it were these aren't top 10 vulnerabilities or these are controls, they don't belong, or I don't like company X. Um, And sometimes all three of those wrapped up together. And uh, there was a lot of pushback. I mean, way more than we've ever seen before. And um, I think to a certain point, Dave and Jeff felt that they weren't, able to contribute any further and they were looking for someone to put it back on the rails and get the project released and so they said do you want to look after it and I thought about it for about three seconds and said yes Um, but then I started delving into what this actually meant and I realized that there was a whole bunch of things happening one is that I think many of the people on Twitter and the social media drama cycle were very interested in improving the governance Um, so one of the very first acts I did is I appointed Neil and um, Torsten Giggler, who had basically been involved in the project for the last seven years, um, and Neil even further, and you, well, 2004. Four, I think, was the first one I worked on. So even longer than I've been involved in it, because, you know, I, I did the I was top 10 2007, and then when I realized how the sausage was made, I thought, this is a, no, this is not good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, re- the reality of the situation is that this is the OWASP top 10. Everyone likes and uses this. Everyone, for better or worse, uses the information security standard. It's not a security standard, but that's how it's used. We needed to get it back on track. So um, once we delved into some of the other reasoning, there's no data behind this. Brian uh, did a fantastic set of blog entries, um, and I think I'll let Brian talk about that, but effectively... Um, it really highlighted the fact that we didn't have the right answers right now and we needed to get that on track. And so in time, we brought Brian on as a co-leader as well. So now we have four leaders. So I think we've actually dealt with the governance issue, which is I think many people got really upset that one company seemed to be pushing in the product type into the top 10. So what does that governance look like then right now? Is there... Is it like the four of you have to vote and decide or what's the, that's something I'm fascinated as to how how are you going to do governance for this moving forward, knowing what's happened in the past? That's a very fine question. I think it's probably, um, we're just collegial at the moment. We we haven't had to make any hard and fast decisions other than the release date. (laughs) We've disagreed over the simple decisions actually, but But also balanced. Right, but 
you know, I think that was sort of part of the reason why so many people were brought on board is to make sure that no one person has undue influence of the project as it moves forward. And I, th I think that's really critical. I think we're working transparently, which is OWASP in a nutshell. Um, everything you see us do is in relation to a GitHub issue or a comment that's made somewhere that's traceable. We want to make sure that the end result of RC2 and the final version is because we've had community feedback, we've had data, um, we've had surveys. Um, there's no more. It's popping out fully formed. That's, that, those are days are done. If we have good, hard discussions where we disagree with each other, it's because it's difficult, not because it's easy. It's not because I'm saying this is the way it's going to be. We, we need to get to a place that if we're all in or mostly in agreement, most of the community will probably back us. And they can see how we came to that decision as well. How are you taking the kind of public comments? How, how is that handled? How does that impact your kind of thinking about, I guess, I mean, I can say how you're going to vote. It's not really a vote at this point, but mm. it kind of is because you're, you're, you're either saying, you know, we all agree or we disagree. How does the public kind of weigh into that? Because I don't see a day where we're going to have a website and if we all vote, like, what do you think should be on the top 10? Well, I like these. Well, uh, there is we a did. website. We did. <laughs> right. We have 516 responses, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, from from anonymous, hopefully security professionals. I don't think my mom voted, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's anonymous, so. Yeah. To round out the OWASP Top 10 discussion, Brian Glass from the Top 10 leadership team describes how they use data analysis to influence the Top 10. So we have one, two... Three good-sized data sets, and I think a fourth potentially coming on top of the original one that we had. Um, so we're no longer in the scenario where one data set's dwarfing all of the other contributors, okay. mm -hmm. um, and it's far more balanced. Uh, but And so now we have the task of trying to balance because it's a mixed set of data. Mm -hmm. Some of the data is driven by human testing assisted by tools, and some of the data is tool testing assisted by humans. Mm -hmm. And so trying to figure out and to be honest, we probably won't be able to use all of the data because some of it will just not fit in terms of a general, you know, based on criteria of can we compare this against each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but I'm excited about the new set that we have because there's a whole lot more I think we can glean from it. It's one of the few times I've seen actually being able to build an aggregation of multiple large-scale vendors being able to contribute data. To so you're, you're normalizing that data then into a standard format, which then, so you can run all this data together and then really draw some good yeah. conclusions. So, so the goal right now is to essentially try and build two views. And one is and the more traditional that had been done before, and that's the aggregation of everything found um, per application. Um, but what that does, in the spe like if you've ever played with statistical averages, you hide a lot of things when you run averages. Mm -hmm. um, so the other thing that we've been getting is um, number of unique apps that the occurrence actually appears in one or more times, regardless of how many times it shows up, but just unique apps that that vulnerability actually shows up in in the vendor data. Um, and so I'm interested in that because that's a whole different level of incidence rate than looking at an aggregation altogether. So what do you what do you hope to get out of that number of unique apps? Is it 
I mean, what, what's yeah, I guess what's the drive, yeah. yeah what's the data point that you're going to be able to take away that would be different from the big aggregation view? So there's a difference between so if say for instance if I have 50 applications and I or 50,000 applications and I have two million cross-site scripting, then I have I have 40 cross-site scripting per application. But that's a very different picture than if I have 50,000 applications, only 8,000 of them contributed to 2 million cross-site right. scripting. Now all of a sudden I have 8,000 out of 50 had cross-site scripting and 42,000 didn't. And it's a totally different picture of incidence rate for cross-site scripting across apps than trying to average out both totals. So, and, and human testers tend to say when they do like a pen test, they say you have cross-site scripting vulnerability in your application. Right, and that's sort of it. They might list a couple of examples, but when you use some automated tester tool, it lists out hundreds or thousands of the same thing. So it sort of really skews it to the things that static analysis checkers are good at if you start counting instances. In episode six, we talk with Mike Goodwin about the OWASP Threat Dragon project. So, Mike, what is the OWASP Threat Dragon? Okay, well, first of all, it's um, it's open source, as all the WASP projects are, um, and it's, cr- it's a cross-platform threat modeling tool. So it's designed to um, to work on any any platform, um, be completely free. Um, the emphasis of it is around um, making it enjoyable to use and, and simple to use, um, and also to, to interact well with the the SDLC generally. I mean, I mean during my time kind of learning threat modeling I, and, and, and also uh, working with other teams developing it. I've seen a lot of models which have sort of fallen by the wayside, become sort of dusty documents sat on the shelf and never used. So one of the key uh, aims that I have is to uh, to make it a living thing, so to make the models closer to, to the developers, um, you know, continue up to date and relevant to what they're doing. But it's, uh, it's, it's basically a simple enough diagramming tool um, it's going to have a powerful, intelligent threat generation component to that. Uh, it's going to have a number of features which uh, which help with that uh, integration to the development lifecycle. Next, we asked Mike to describe for us how the user flow of ThreatDragon actually works. So... I mean, if I, it's easiest if I compare it to the, the Microsoft tool. So the, the templates the, and the stencils that you have in the diagramming part of the Microsoft tool um, are quite comprehensive. There's a lot of different elements you can put on the diagrams. It's a, it's a, it's a regular data flow diagram, but kind of in, enriched um, with different styles of, of um, data store and different styles of external actor and things like that. And I just find that that's quite overwhelming, especially for, for somebody quite new to threat model or new to the tool. So the the um, the threat dragon approach is really to, to to boil that down to the um, you know to the fundamentals. So you have just the straightforward um, types of elements, not really um, enriched in any any particular way. So it's simple to get you um, you know drawing your diagrams out, understanding the data flows quickly without having to try and figure out well okay well what what type of a of a process is this out of the you know the several that might be on offer from the um, from the Microsoft tool. Um, the kind of next step, next step after that, and again, I, I should say that I mean the, the project, I mean it, it's a, it's still a um, an incubator project in OWASP terms, which means it's quite early stage. Uh, but the the next stage after the diagramming will will be um, 
to have the tools suggest some threats to you. Um, now, again, Microsoft tool and other tools, they, they do a, a quite comprehensive job about, uh, of that. But, but to me, it's a li- they try actually to do a little bit too much. So the, one of the visions, I guess, I would have for, for Threat Dragon is that it, it emphasizes having the developers and having the threat modelers um, thinking about the solution and doesn't attempt to give a, you know, a very comprehensive um, set of automated threats that are generated and then they just have to kind of say okay well now I have to okay I have to implement mitigations for these 17 threats that have generated in a kind of mechanistic way I really wouldn't want it to suggest more somehow more high level threats and then have the people the teams the threat modeling teams discuss them kind of critically evaluate them and figure out for themselves what uh, you know what exactly is the the threat is it real um, how do we mitigate it without trying to do too much for them Obviously, that's a that's a quite delicate balance to strike because you, you you run the risk of making it so high level actually that it's uh, that it's worthless in terms of, of of helping people. But at the same time, I think you know I see it as a as much as anything as an educational tool to get people thinking critically about what threats their applications are facing. In episode seventeen, we spoke with Katie Anton and Jim Manico and asked them the question: What are the proactive controls? And where did the proactive controls come from? So the proactive controls um, are targeted for developers and uh, are created by developers. So Jim Manico from a development background and Jim Bird as well, who is a CEO. Um, and they are controls, um, security techniques that uh, we would like developers to use while they write their code. So this would be something that they can easily use um, while writing the code without being security experts, but they still are able to produce a more secure software. If I may, like the, the this is Jim, hello everyone. The, the proactive controls document it, it, it's, it's kind of like a comment on the OWASP Top 10. The OWASP Top 10 is risk-based, really for more risk managers or, or more secure, traditional security people. And very often, as, as the OWASP Top 10 you know, made its way around, I found that developer didn't always speak to developers, right? It's not in their language. It's in security language. So the Proactive Controls is a, is a kind of a comment on the OWASP Top 10, a similar kind of list that's made for developers by developers, talking about high-level security areas that they need to concern themselves with. It's an awareness document. It's meant for one read. So like my, my hope is developers read it once, then they never read again. They go focus on other documents that, that go into more detail and nuance. So how much of a how much can a practitioner type stuff is in there though? Is it is it enough for somebody to really get an idea what they should go and do? Or is that the intention of it, or is it supposed to be a little bit higher level, kind of like a WASP top ten? It's it's a, first of all, it's a top ten document, mm-hmm. so it, it is meant to be a high level awareness document. And and you know, and and we were fairly liberal in, in how we picked the categories. There's not like a stringent criteria here per se. For example, one of the categories number two is parameterized queries, which is very specific, very specific. and we give exact code examples of how to do that. Right. Another area is implement identity and authentication controls. We could go read a book on that and still have a lot of ways to go. In fact, look at NIST 
863. This is like a, a 300 page document that talks about uh, identity. Yep. So these categories aim at different levels, but we think they're the, the kinds of topics that developers really need to be aware about, especially for their first approach towards web security to help them, you know, be able to absorb other material around secure software building. And normally we focus on the origin story, like we already heard kind of where Katie came from and her experience here. But I'm curious as to the origin story of the proactive controls. Like, what was the, what, what, what was the, what kind of started this thing? Was it like two people kind of sitting around a table going, we should write a top, another list or how did it start? The, the project started, I'm, I'm the original project leader of it. Uh, the, the project started with, uh, Andrew Vanderstock and, and I discussing, uh, you know, we need to have a developer-centric top 10. Andrew got the project started, and, and Andrew moved to other other things. Andrew is very active within the community. He's working on the OWASP top 10 now, ASVS, and many other projects. So he didn't have time to, to, to stick with the proactive controls, and we just started building it out. I, I and a few others started just building it out. It got near the end. Katie and Jim Bird joined around this time and were extremely active contributors, so I asked them both to be co-leads. I don't, I don't think any OWASP project, especially documentation projects for awareness, should be controlled by one person or vendor. So so Jim and Katie joined and now we have, and all three of us are from very different development backgrounds and we do different kinds of software development. So we, we have exceptionally civil conversations, I would say, to help, <laughs> That's to, good. To help determine you know, what, the, what the next version is going to be. Okay, good. Awesome. So, um, what are the, what are some of the changes you're looking at for the next version that are kind of floating around in your head? We're, we're in transition right now. So right now we're, we're just about to finish the, the current version, version 3.0. Okay. And, and, and keep in mind, up, up until now, version 3.0, this is Katie, Jim Bird, and I doing the best from our experience to pick items developers need to be, be concerned with. And so 3.0 is a is is a reshuffling of some of the items, but it's not a it's honestly it's more of a point change. It's not a major change. And we're and uh, we're getting community feedback. We actually made the document world editable so anybody in the world can anonymously provide comments. We make those comments uh, not fully submitted so we can review them and accept or reject them as, as the project leaders, but we, we allow feedback from the entire world. We're in the 3.0 feedback phase. And again, this is a, a relatively subtle change, I think, right? It's not like a prolific change. After version 3.0, though, we want to be more in alignment with the OWASP top 10 and okay. be more in alignment with data. So now that the OWASP top 10 leadership has changed, they have four different leaders from four different companies, a new call for data. They're on GitHub now. All these very positive changes. I, I'd like us to be more in alignment with them. But what we asked is, we're, gonna, we're, we're so close to the end of 3.0, we're going to finish 3.0. Yeah. And, and then as we approach 4.0, we're going to be, we're going to try to be more in alignment with OWASP top 10 with a call for data and, and try to, try to build this proactive control list as something that's more than from, from our heads, right? And more, and, and, and more from just community feedback as well and get some data so we can make, make sure we're picking the right categories. In episode 13, we were joined by Tanya and Nicole from the OWASP DevSlop project. And so we asked them, what is DevSlop and what was your motivation for creating it? 
So DevSwap is going to be the overall project. Okay. And it's going to be a jungle gym for hackers to learn on. And we want to have lots of modern, new, different types of web application and web issues that can exist, like especially DevOps-related things, um, and let people learn on them. And then Pixie is the first release of things we're releasing. So um, I'm going to let Nicole explain Pixie, but our plan is to just release a new thing. Basically, like when we see terrible things at work, then we are going to change them so that the victims cannot be revealed, but um, like change them and then like plug them in. So for instance, like I really want to like store our keys to something in our GitHub repository so that people will come get them. Like something like that. So it's like things that we've seen where we're like, oh no, we just want to like make all of those part of DevSwap over time to help people learn. Do you want to tell them about Pixie? Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, I mean, hopefully DevSwap will be a bunch of apps, right? That's sort of the goal. Mm -hmm. um, and Pixie is its first little app. And it's basically like this photo sharing website that um, you can like a photo and give it like a heart, kind of like, you know, all the sites we know of today. Or you could love it and give it like a little bit of Bitcoin, like a micropayment in Bitcoin. So it's sort of like this little play there. Um, but it's, you know, it's vulnerable. It's got a bunch of really like horrible things under the hood, but it looks cool, right? It's using like the latest and greatest. So it kind of looks cool. It's built in like Mongo Express, Angular Node. So it's got some vulnerabilities inherent to that exact meme stack. Um, lately I've been messing around with like writing in PureHP 2.0 app because, you know, there's a lot of proxies out there and a lot of different testing tools out there that really don't know how to like deal with HTTP 2.0. So I've been like teaching myself the new uh, spec here and like trying to write an app that maybe we could use to like test and train on that. So I think like, you know, just as Tanya said, as we see trends and like paradigm shifts in the development industry that is like, you know, becoming more microservice like oriented or, you know, maybe HTTP 2.0 is going to become a thing. Um, you know, like as we see these trends happening, what we want to do is like really showcase them with like a vulnerable app that people could like look at and test on. So that's sort of what DevSwap is supposed to be. So like, yeah, like as Tanya mentioned, people like get commit pem keys and all sorts of other keys right so like yeah like we're gonna build in like the that's that sort of stuff but we, we kind of want to make them more like app focused things where it's like these little apps that you can test on and like understand all right this is a hp 2.0 app this is a you know a web of microservices that no one really understands this is like all sorts of other things that can go on so you know we're in the market for ideas so you know we only see our slice of the world so anybody out there that has a really great idea for like uh you know, a fun dev slop app. We'd love to hear from you. I think it'd be really fun too. Like Pixie's in a container. I think it'd be really fun if eventually if we had different containers and the containers could work together, work separately. And obviously we need a terribly vulnerable container. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the OWASP mobile guys where they have a vulnerable mobile app. I think it's a mobile goat. Um, mm -hmm. And they were talking about possibly, like, figuring out a way that they could call the Pixie APIs. Like, I think it could be fun if, like, different things call each other and stuff. Like, there's a lot of opportunities to do cool stuff. And finally, on episode 19, Tin Zah joined us to answer the question, what is mod security? Yeah, so mod security is um, really one of the, you know, success stories of OWASP. And it started as an uh, open source project by the gentleman named Ivan Ristik back in 2002. And it has been, you know, growing uh, in user base and uh, 
still going strong with the new releases and new uh, people actively working on that. And there are some principles behind, you know, web uh, more security that is to be open, to be flexible, and also to be passive in monitoring things so it doesn't interfere with the traffic or the pattern, you know, uh, unless you tell it to do so. And predictable behavior in that, you know, what you see is what you get. These uh, rules are open and visible by everyone, so you know what these rules do, and you get the predictable behavior out of it. Okay, so when you say it's open, is it uh, the source code? Is it what, How is it uh, implemented? Yes. So, um, Moss Security is an open source project, and actually it is open source projects in that there are two components related to Moss Security. Uh, one is what we call the engine, right? The engine is just an empty set of rules, but it has, you know, ability to uh, execute these rules. And the other Moss Security project is what we call the core rule set, and that is the standard and the basic, you know, rule set for going together with the Moss Security uh, engine. So they are two different projects, but they work very closely and they are deployed as a package together. Okay. So maybe we can back up a little bit and see, when we're talking about mod security, does, where does mod security actually fit in the architecture here? So um, I, I feel like uh, I, I'm, I really don't know the answer to that. So I'm curious right. as far as where, where, do, where do I put this mod security thing? Right. So uh, this mod security, the combination of engine and the rule set, you can put it in inside your web server, right? So uh, whether you're running Apache or IIS or Nginx, you can use it as a mod. It's a you know it's a it's a module inside the web server. That's one way to deploy that. The other way to deploy that as a, as a proxy somewhere in between you know the user browser and your application or web server, right? So that would be like your load balancer. You know, or, you know, SSL terminator in your data center, or it could be at the CDN or content delivery network. You know, so it's like a web, so you, you could actually take a web server and install mod security on it, but it doesn't actually host the applications Correct. itself. It's acting yes. as that proxy function. Or something. And then the other option would be to install mod security directly on the web server. That is correct. To, okay, okay. So, okay, I have a better idea now about kind of where, where these things are. Great. So we hope you've enjoyed Season 2 of the Application Security Podcast, and we look forward to the creation of Season 3, which is underway right now, where you've identified a number of different people to go out and interview. So please stay tuned in early 2018 for the return of the Application Security Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. Our intro music is 8-Bit Kung Fu by Born and TJ, and the outro is Southern Delight by Stefan Kartenberg. You can find us on Twitter at AppSecPodcast or on the web at www.appsecpodcast.org.